Brought to you by Moonbeam Multimedia. This is 16 to 1, a podcast about education, teaching, and learning. Hello, we're back after yes a guest episode. We that's are. why it feels different. That is why. Okay, well, yes. welcome back. Yes, everyone. we had a great conversation with Jim Mahoney. Yep. That was we had been wanting to do that for a long time, but do it was you, fascinating. Do you see why I want him at every professional development day yes. we do? Like any topic, I'll listen. Yes, doesn't matter. Yes, yeah, he's great. He's got a story for everything. I wish he could have told some of the ones that I've heard because uh-huh. I mean he has had like our entire district staff like rolling laughing. That's like, fun. He knows how to hold an audience. He's yes. he's really wonderful, yes. and he was probably one of the first handful of people we wrote down to be on this podcast. So yes, that's that true. was really wonderful to have him. Yeah, we had a great time with that episode. So thanks for sticking around for that. That was a special guest episode. We are back. Just the two of us this week. We are talking about homework, but before we get into that, we are trying something new and putting our What We Learned segment yeah. at the top of the show. Go for it. What did you learn this past week? This is so cool. So as of the fall of 2023, we live near a UNESCO heritage site. Yes. So there are now 25 UNESCO World Heritage Sites in the U.S., and delegates from across the world met in Saudi Arabia and approved Ohio's own Hopewell Ceremonial Earthworks to their list. The Ohio Earthworks is a series of eight monumental earthen enclosure complexes built between 2,000 and 1,600 years ago along the central tributaries of the Ohio River. They are the most representative surviving expressions of the indigenous tradition now referred to as the Hopewell culture. And there are three pieces to this site throughout Ohio, and one is right near us. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may have heard of this before it was announced as a UNESCO World Heritage Site, because the one nearest us is also has been under hot topic because of its very close relationship to a golf course. Okay. Unfortunately, yes. So we visited this on a on a field trip when I was in elementary school. Yeah, we came over here to see this place, and mm-hmm. it's really it's really interesting. It's weird to live this close to it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. To compare what other UNESCO sites exist. Mm -hmm. Machu Picchu in Peru. The Great Barrier Reef. Yellowstone National Park. The Great Wall of China. The Acropolis. The Pyramids of Giza. And Venice and its lagoons. I hope that this encourages Ohio to properly value it and care for it. Yeah. So. How do you learn about this? My entire Facebook is full of this because I apparently am only friends with park rangers, it seems. Um, no, I'm like... Lots of park ranger well, friends. Well, okay. I know a few people who helped excavate part of the sites. Uh-huh. And so they were, you know, sharing all kinds of really cool stories about it and things like that. And it was big news here in Ohio. Our governor commented on it and things like that. So it's a pretty rare thing. I Very- didn't realize there were so few... UNESCO yeah, in the, there's in the only US. like 20 some in the US, I think is what I read. Did I read that already? Mm-hmm. On here? 25. Usually. 25, okay. And most of them are obviously national parks, very, very large national parks like Yellowstone. So, mm-hmm. what did you learn? Oh, well, I'm trying to be better about getting through my, my reading list. I just rolled my Even eyes. though I still haven't finished the Bell Labs book, but 
I'm convinced you don't want to finish I don't the want Bell to finish Labs it. Book. Okay. What do you have to like a sentence a day? What are we? No. What's the reading rate? I just come back to it when I need to cheer myself up. But anyway, okay. So I finished a different book. <laughs> cheer myself up with some quick Bell Labs. Okay. Yeah. MIT. You know, telecommunications. Right. It's so cheering. So cheery. Okay. So I finished a book called The Death of Expertise which is a 2017 book by Tom Nichols about the decline of public trust in experts and expertise and the consequences of this decline. Nichols cites a number of factors for what he calls the decline of expertise, which includes the usual suspects like the rise of partisan media and the spread of misinformation on social media, the decline of civic education, and then he even talks about how experts themselves have somewhat contributed to a decline of trust mm -hmm. in expertise, through, you know, retracted studies and data falsification. And he discussed a couple of really interesting high-profile research cases where it was the researchers themselves or the experts themselves who got things wrong. But yeah, it was a very interesting analysis. I was ultimately kind of unsatisfied with the conclusions or the takeaways, which I don't know how you couldn't be because this is, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. it is what it is, but <laughs> it wasn't ever, gonna, it, it wasn't going to give me a It was only going to end that way. Absolutely. I got news. <laughs> but I guess what I would say is that there's kind of a key takeaway from the book and that's that there, we seem to be living in a cultural moment where anti-intellectualism or anti-expertise attitudes are something that at least some people are starting to become proud of. <laughs> Mm -hmm. and that's a little bit different from before like we've been you know we've had various moments throughout history where we've been as a culture deeply skeptical of various kinds of expertise for whatever reason and like you know there's some healthy degree of skepticism but this Nichols guy is kind of saying that we've got a moment right now where it's more of a pressing mm -hmm. concern because of these attitudes of sure of boasting about anti-intellectualism so you know I don't think he has a lot of hope that we're going to turn this around a whole lot mm -hmm. anytime soon but it was a really interesting discussion like yeah. i said i walked away kind of n not feeling totally satisfied but yeah. i uh unfortunate i would suggest people give it a read it was an interesting one it didn't take that long either it was like a six hour audiobook not bad yeah okay housekeeping before we move on to our headlines go ahead and sign up for our newsletter 16 to 1 newsletter it's on our website 16 to 1.com all spelled out if you scroll all the way down to the bottom you can sign up um, we did have a special ask that we wanted to we wanted to hear from you all, our listeners, about this. We're preparing for an upcoming episode. If you can believe it, we're preparing for our 100th episode of this podcast. It's hard to believe. We've been doing this for a while now. <laughs> so in that episode 100, we're going to do some some questions of educators. If you wouldn't mind, write into us. Hello at 16to1.com, all spelled out. Send us the most pressing questions that you've always wanted to ask your teachers. Please. Even if you've been nervous to ask them in the past. Ask it. Um, I am going to be answering your questions. Yes. Yes. All of them. The most pressing. Do teachers notice when kids have a crush on each other? Yes. Do we make them sit near each other? Sometimes. Okay, those are the types of questions we're talking about. We're doing a tell-all. We are. Your one chance. Write in to us. We'd love to answer your most pressing questions for your educators. Send in some questions. As many as you want, really. Yeah. And uh, maybe we will answer yours. Yes. Okay. Any other housekeeping notes? It's Ban Books Week. Ban Books Week. Ban Books Week is celebrated different weeks of October, depending on w when and where you celebrate and your school schedule. So pick up your favorite banned book. Yeah. Read it. Yeah. Because words are important. Words. And if they're <laughs> banning them, you should wonder what's in it. Okay. Agreed. That's all.
We're going to start with something very well, close to home. Another again. thing that's close to home and I hate it. It's a bit of a mess. Okay. The Ohio Department of Education. Yes. Formerly known as ODE is in the midst of a messy and major reorganization. In real time. This is melting down in this real time. This is happening in real time. Mm-hmm. Um, so in July of 2023, the Ohio legislature passed House Bill 33, which renamed ODE, the Department of Ed, to ODEW, which I love. They added oh, that do. W. So now it's the Department of Education and Workforce, not okay. just the Department of Education. Interesting. And they made it a cabinet-level agency reporting to the governor. Yes. Previously... 11 of the 19 positions on the Ohio State Board of Education were citizen elected. Yeah. The bill also limited the State Board of Education's power in teacher disciplinary and licensure cases and territorial disputes. So this reorganization is being overseen by interim superintendent Chris Woolard and has been met with opposition from some teachers, school administrators, and parents. Some. Um, these some people are arguing that the reorganization will politicize education and weaken the State Board of Ed. Seven members of the Ohio State Board of Education filed a lawsuit against Governor DeWine on September 19th to block the education department changes in the state budget bill. And on October 3rd, 2023, a Franklin County judge issued a temporary restraining order blocking the implementation of this reorganization. Mm -hmm. That judge ruled that the reorganization violated the Ohio Constitution because it was passed during the budget process, which is not allowed under the Constitution. So the Ohio Attorney General's office has appealed the judge's ruling. The case is currently before the Ohio Supreme Court. It's unclear what will happen to the ODEW if the Ohio Supreme Court upholds the judge's ruling. It's possible that the ODE will be returned to its previous glory, I would dare to call it. Glory. Uh, status as a non-cabinet-level agency. I don't think ODE was very glorious okay. to begin with. I was I'm just going to throw it know. out there. I'm just not sure this is better. So uh-huh. maybe this, that was glorious compared to what we're looking at. Could be. I'm unsure. It is also possible that the legislature will try to pass a new bill to reorganize the ODEW in a way that is compliant with the Ohio Constitution. But in the meantime, the governor is insisting that ODEW plows ahead with its work, despite a temporary restraining order yeah, and perhaps a contempt of court. Who knows? Uh, and mostly what I care about is nobody knows who is going to be cutting the checks to the Ohio schools. Yeah. So if this is my last episode because I can't afford my internet next month, <laughs> come back to this. Mark my words. <laughs> if you don't hear from so, me. As we've talked about on 95 episodes now, if education loves anything, it's an acronym. And now we have ODU. ODU. <laughs> Which is yeah, this is so fitting to me. I do just want to underscore how crazy this is right now because I don't think that anybody in our state knows who is actually in no charge? And it's because, so there was a, a a brief restraining order that blocked this law from going into effect, but then she extended the restraining order. But Governor DeWine is just like, I don't care. The law goes into effect this date. Just plow on ahead. Like, yeah. Right now, there are technically... People working. Well, there are two departments of education in the state, <laughs> as far as I can tell. Do you think they just have like a red phone that connects them? They I just pick know. it up and they're like, hello, over there. I don't know where the phone, like, where does the phone call go? If are you they, call Is ODE? like their room like split in half? Yeah, I really don't know. <laughs> so like a filing cabinet in the middle? Yeah. Anyway, it's chaos. It's chaos in our state. Like I said, I wasn't proud to have to share that information. Right. But I have had a few people reach out and be like, what does this mean? And my answer has been, yeah, what does it mean? Because it's so unclear right now. Wouldn't you like to know? And so would I. 
I mean, it's just goofy stuff like licensing and things like that. Like, what is happening? Yeah, people's credentials are going to be held up. Like, yeah. who, is, who who issues credentialing yeah. decisions? I mean, it's just a lot of time. Mike and Fran are just vibing out there. Mike and Fran. Fran, Fran DeWine. Yeah, she's taller than him. He's oh, a, he's a short king. <laughs> Mike DeWine, the short king. The short king please, of Odoo. Please make sure that the short king of Odoo is included. Okay. So, yeah, anyway, this is pretty highly politicized. As you can imagine, this is following a trend in other Republican-backed yeah. legislatures across the country. You know, I charge. would just like fewer fingers in the pie. That's all. <laughs> Less pie touching. Okay. What you got this week? Well... Uh, Better or worse? I'll leave that up to you to decide. Can't wait. (laughs) Cannot Um, wait for this. So, (laughs) yeah, within the last couple of weeks, we have the latest release for the public of the California Mathematics Framework, which is a 1,000-page-plus proposal to overhaul mathematics instruction in California public schools. This document is meant to serve as guidance, so it's not a binding document. It's been the topic of pretty intense debate in the California legislature and the public. There have been numerous public comment periods. The whole point of this framework document is to try to address educational equity concerns with a focus on applied and authentic mathematics problems. There's a lot of addressing timing of certain curricula, mathematics mm-hmm. curricula, mm-hmm. a lot of different stuff going on in this, but it's, okay. it's a huge report. But among other recommendations, the report suggests that we banish algebra one from middle schools and only teach it in high schools mm, which interesting is a bit of a mm, not so clear that that's actually a good choice I, I guess i will say that you know a thousand page plus document makes it just by its very size a bit resistant to public scrutiny <laughs> because it's just so huge which is actually something that critics of it have have taken issue with is they're like it's so long nobody can read it or understand it which is nor do we have the time yeah 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 Critics have also taken issue with some of the research cited by the report, suggesting that the research itself does not back the report's conclusions, that it kind of contradicts itself if you actually look at the research. Such a flaw. This sounds to me a lot... They didn't think you would read the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. It sounds to me a lot like Fountas and Pinnell um, and their approach to phonics, and we talked about that very briefly. We recommended uh, APM Reports Sold a Story podcast, which is about phonics instruction in this country, and... The long story short of that was that a couple of experts invented an approach to teaching phonics that does not help students learn to read. And I I think after that reporting came out, which was very interesting reporting, there's now more scrutiny on these things. So luckily people are paying attention to stuff like this mathematics framework and Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, analyzing it, scrutinizing it a little more closely than we might otherwise. I I have, I did not get a chance to (laughs) comb through 1,000 pages. I oh, really didn't. You were reading, but your I book. love. I would love to hear from our listeners or anybody in California, anybody who's close to this. I, I'd love a little more information about what this is all about because people are absolutely up in arms about it, and uh, it sounds like a pretty interesting story. So. Yeah. You learned a lot. Oh, I did. Just take us right in. Okay. Let's just dive in. Yeah, let's do. I want to just say briefly. That I never would have thought, based on my own experience of public education, that there is not a consensus on the general effectiveness of homework. <laughs> because I was assigned a lot of homework, or at least it felt like a lot of homework. And I, I talked to my mom this morning because mm-hmm. I was like, I need to make sure that I'm not just 
remembering it. As, yeah, that I'm not yeah, misremembering. Remember. Right, yeah. right. But she confirmed that I did, in fact, have many hours of homework. So okay. I guess I would just say, based on my experience at public school, I never would have thought that the jury is kind of out on on the general effectiveness of homework. Mm-hmm. I also want to say homework is really interesting because it sits at this threshold between school and home. And for many, many, many students, that space is fraught. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll kind of see that homework and trends in homework and the effectiveness of homework and all these studies, it, we, we kind of follow this like roller coaster of how how important people think it is, mm-hmm. how much people think we should be doing. And that's because it it's, like I said, it's just tied to the social unit of family. It's tied to, you know, equity concerns that we talk about a lot in terms of access to like time and a parent and technology and tutoring and all of that stuff. So homework is kind of a fraught topic. I probably spent more time on homework because I was so anxious about getting it mm-hmm. done correctly. Right. <laughs> yeah, like I said, I did talk to my mom and she was she estimated that I probably spent a couple of hours each night in elementary and middle school doing homework. And she said it was like hard to say in high school, but that I probably spent also a great deal of time on homework then. And I would say it was probably consistent a couple of hours each night. Mm-hmm. Um, what about yours? No. No? No. I don't I, know how you got out of this. How did you wriggle out of the homework? I... I really don't remember nightly homework until middle school. Wow. That doesn't mean I didn't have homework along the way, but I feel like it was mostly just like, I didn't get this done in class. I didn't make it to school that day because I was sick. You and I mean, I was studying maybe. I remember doing vocab at home. I remember doing spelling at home. Mm-hmm. That's really it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was like weekly, right? Because like you took your test on Friday or whatever. I remember just drowning in worksheets. That was my thing. It was like all worksheets. Worksheets were a very big deal in elementary school. Yeah, I mean, worksheets I, about anything, everything. I remember doing worksheets. I don't remember. I maybe I should have also asked my parents. I really don't think I had that much homework until middle school. Middle school was just like math homework, that kind of thing. Hmm. I always had a study hall, like up through high school. I did not take the most rigorous courses. So I had probably a little bit more free time than I should have now looking back. Didn't have that much homework in high school, except for whenever I took certain courses. It was usually math, took chemistry. There was some of that. But other than that, I probably could have challenged myself more. Well, um, yeah, yes and no, because your homework experience is actually more in line with current best yeah. practice understanding. So, so. <laughs> I actually think that that's why in my classroom it looks the way it does. I do not intentionally give homework. I do not print something that's like for home. What is their homework is the stuff they didn't get finished in class. Mm-hmm. But that also is me expecting them to pick up the slack and do some of it on their own. We just finished reading Julius Caesar and they got to like act three and they were struggling. And I was like, do you all ever go home and just like look at the spark note summary of what we read? They're like, no. I'm like, that's your homework. Like those are the types of things I expect you to be doing to better yourself for what happens in class. So I do not print worksheets I don't intentionally send anything home as homework unless it's studying or missed work, absence, something like that. I do maybe two actual worksheets a year that require some kind of a raisin at home to fill it out with them. Yeah, can you explain that term, please? I've used this term before on here, but a raisin is the people that are raising you. Whoever that is at home. Whoever is with you at home is your raisin. So I do like a dialect activity. And so I want that to be filled out with people at home. Because they might have been from somewhere else or come, you know, whatever. You might get some fun data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those are the only things that are intentionally homework. I also don't have enough books to send home. 
for everyone to read at night or something like that. So resources are a factor. Now for like my seniors, because they're in a college writing course, it's very different. But their schedule is the opposite of the rest of my students. So they do have homework. But my 10th graders, I don't mess with it. I might feel differently if I had the resources to support it. I might feel differently. But Julius Caesar is not going to make sense any more at home than it does with me. And so that's just kind of my approach. So if this is sounding strange to you, you're probably not alone because the homework battles have been raging for decades and decades. And I really did not realize much of this, mm-hmm. but like this I is said, a hot topic. It is, but it hasn't held a consistent position throughout at least American, the history of American schooling. It's popularity comes and goes. And like we mentioned, it's often highly politicized. Mm-hmm. It can, you know, it turns from administration to administration or from world event to world event. All of these things impact the degree to which homework makes its way into public school students' mm-hmm. book bags. So going back at least to the modern progressive reform movement, at the, the turn of the 20th century, we get a bunch of progressive reformers and the pragmatist school. So we've got people like John Dewey. Uh, we did a whole episode on John Dewey. People like that arguing that homework, it's not this hands-on and learn-by-doing approach mm-hmm. that was very very popular at the turn of the century. A lot of what homework was at that time was like rote memorization Mm -hmm. and go home and learn these things and then come back and recite them. Sure. And obviously, well, maybe not obviously, now we question the value of that kind of rote memorization and recitation. And I think the pushback against that kind of homework assignment makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. The progressives were also making the case that that kind of burden of homework creates undue stress in the life Mm -hmm. of students there's a lot of data that suggests that homework does induce a good deal of stress yeah me too um it does on me as well yeah for 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 teachers certainly uh for students definitely also for parents parents report uh their students experiencing stress and report themselves experiencing stress because of homework loads many a night i remember sitting at my parents kitchen table just fighting about math homework or something i feel like it's usually math homework i remember some tearful exchanges yeah homework i just man i think back at that time and i think about how miserable some of those nights were and like was it worth it i can remember how awful the fights were because of how frustrating it was but i could not tell you what the worksheet was and like what matters Mm -hmm. that's why i think i have such like a reaction to homework I loved the years when I got to come home and like read with my mom at night because that was like one of our things was like to read every evening or something. But for the most part, I'm filled with the memories of the frustration of playing three sports, being in band and drama and doing all these activities and then whatever. Yeah. You know, extracurriculars definitely do make an impact. I just remember struggling so much. I I remember losing sleep to try to get homework Mm -hmm. done. I mean, being up until the wee hours of the morning and then we have to of course get up at like you know 6 30 to go to school or whatever but mm-hmm. being up until two or three in the morning finishing essays or sure calculus homework in high school or whatever it was yeah. so anyway back to the sort of history here anti-homework sentiment fades when cold war tensions start to ratchet up in the kind of post sputnik era because you know we've got this sense of oh as a country we gotta buckle down and beat the soviets kind of thinking that popped up and then we get also, at that same time, we get a kind of countercultural movement 
broader political forces and events, the integration of schools, all kinds of stuff going on that re-energizes the more progressive attitudes toward homework. So later 60s and 70s, we start to see the shift back away from overly prescribing homework. Mm -hmm. Then we get this kind of watershed moment, 1983. There's this report, rather famous, called A Nation at Risk. At some point, we're going to do an entire episode on the Reagan administration's lasting impact on public education in this country. But just for now, we're going to talk about this one teeny piece of it. And that's this report. It's by the, uh, the U.S. National Commission on Excellence in Education. Like I said, it was published in 1983, called A Nation at Risk. It was intended to be some kind of a wake-up call for the U.S., warning that American students were falling behind peers in other countries and that the quality of American education was in decline. This kind of sounds familiar. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Sounds like we've been saying the same thing for this many decades. The report analyzed a number of alarming statistics, including evidence of declining standardized test scores, teacher shortages, lack of parental involvement in school systems, and a lack of curricular rigor. This sounds like it could have been written yesterday. Yeah. Um, the last one about rigor and academic standards had and continues to have an outsized impact on the question mm -hmm. of homework because everyone's like, oh, well, if we need to put rigor back into our schools, we got to start piling on the homework. So now we're kind of into the 21st century. One of my friends sent me a uh, Instagram post and it was since it's October headstones for teachers and like things that we died of spooky and it was like implementing more rigor and then it said mortis <laughs> so yes that's still a thing i'm dealing with okay so the 21st century so far we've been a pretty homework heavy era american teenagers now average about twice as much time spent on homework each day as their predecessors did in the 90s which is wild yeah given how much homework i had in the 90s yeah but yeah and so even little kids are asked to bring home school with them today. Yeah. I will say just anecdotally about my coworkers and my friends who have children, there's always the great debate on who their student has in class for the year based on the amount of homework that gets at home. So mm -hmm. it is a factor. Still. Oh, yeah. It's a big deal. Uh-huh. And my coworkers are always like sharing notes. They're like, who does your kid have? Okay. What do, you know, they're always like trying to work it out. Um, not to expect, say that they're not willing to have homework, sure. but there's a They're like, you can expect line. this many hours of crying at the kitchen table. Yes. Mm -hmm. Will it jeopardize our family as a whole? Okay, good. <laughs> and that's nightly. Okay, yes. perfect. So, for example, there's a study from 2015, and it found that kindergartners, who researchers tend to agree shouldn't have any take-home work, were spending about 25 minutes a night on it. Gosh, okay. that's so much. I'm like thinking about being five, and that's I know a that's lot the thing. Is like twenty five minutes to a uh, to our adult brain is like okay, whatever. That's I can't like even three get TikToks. I, three TikToks, over. right? <laughs> yeah. No, but like for for that young, a little of a, kid. a little tyke. That's so can you imagine long. concentrating on one thing for twenty five minutes? Well, I, mean, I was just reading over the weekend with one of our friend's daughters, and she's in first grade. Yeah, and we got through one Bear Seen Bears book, and it wasn't even twenty five minutes. And she was like, "Well, this is fun," you know, and we had a great time. But I could tell she didn't want to do that forever and ever. Anyways. Yeah. yeah. So the American Journal of Family Therapy found students in the early elementary school years are getting significantly more homework than is recommended by education leaders. And in some of these cases, it's actually nearly three times as much homework as is recommended. Yeah. So all of this research is included in our show notes as always. But here's a quote. Uh, quote, the data shows that homework over this level is not 
only not beneficial to children's grades or GPA, but there's really a plethora of evidence that is detrimental to their attitude about school, their grades, their self-confidence, their social skills, and their quality of life. Yeah. Research also showed that excessive homework is associated with high stress levels, physical health problems, and a lack of balance in children's lives. And 56% of the students in the study cited homework as their primary stressor in their lives. Yeah. I don't want to be that teacher. Do you see what I mean? And it's not that I didn't have the most wonderful childhood and the greatest parents, but those are the things you remember when you think back. And that's the biggest bummer. Uh Okay, so there is... There's a rule of thumb. Yes. That's very popular in some education communities. It should be all of them, I think, personally, but it's called the 10 minute rule. Mm -hmm. And this suggests that homework should be approximately 10 minutes per night per grade level. 10 minutes a night for first graders, 20 minutes a night for second graders. And so that would work up to then up to two hours a night for high schoolers. Mm hmm. I think that's more appropriate. That's like total for all subjects. Though, yes. Right? That's yeah. like Can per evening. That's as much as you should do. I think that's great appropriate. And I think even if we're looking at lower grades, like that should be reading time or you and I like that can look like a lot of things mm-hmm. for students. Mm-hmm. So I don't hate that. I mean, I pretty much follow the rule in my class that the videos that I show them in class are only as many minutes long as they are old. So my kids are 15 and 16. So I try not to show them anything longer than like a 16 minute video. If it's like a learning video, that's not like a movie that I'm teaching Mm -hmm. for some other purpose. So I think this is appropriate. So because of the push around homework in and out, right, over decades and decades, as we've seen right now, we see some schools limiting homework or attempting to limit and place some rules around the homework. Mm -hmm. So some school districts limit their homework to maybe an hour per night. That's for all subjects, not per subject. Yeah. Some schools have eliminated due dates after weekends or breaks. Ah, so you don't have to stress over the weekend. Uh Uh-huh. That's nice. This one I wrote down because I'm not sure, but it's called only doing homework that is, quote, important. (laughs) And I would like to know who wrote that. Who decides which homework is important? Yeah, I know. I was like, okay, I'm going to copy. Yeah, I'm going to copy and paste that one because I want to know. And then... (laughs) The last one said that for a lot of schools that have rules like this, their AP and honor courses are exempt. And so that pretty much defeats the purpose because those are the courses in which you normally have the most work. I mean, yeah, I am curious. So like those kind of college bound populations, Mm -hmm. I think there is something to be said for learning healthy homework habits. Yes. um, In high school, particularly if you're college bound. And that's because... The transition from high school to college is, I think, becoming more and more extreme Mm -hmm. for students because of a whole different, a whole bunch of different factors. (laughs) But that transition is becoming more and more difficult. I I think that colleges and universities are starting to see that Mm -hmm. students are less and less prepared for the rigor of college coursework. And we can question whether or not more homework is the answer to that. I don't really think it, it is, given the data that we're reviewing here Mm -hmm. um i don't think just like more homework is really like maybe different quality homework is is part of the answer but so so anyway it is interesting like you know i can imagine ap and college level like honors courses but Mm -hmm. still the data suggests that just too much of it no matter what the purpose or what the class too much of it can even have a detrimental effect that actually surprised me it surprised me that the problem is so acute that we are assigning so much homework that it's hurting academic yeah. performance. Yeah. That's just, that's that, nuts to me. Well, and that's one of those 
I mean, that's one of the reasons that I'm one of the ones that's like, okay, I'll do less. I work with a lot of different types of students in my school and I see how much they have on them. My hope is that the work that I place on them, they will value it because I only assign to them what I must. I don't do fluff. I don't do time killing stuff. Like you and I mean, it is exactly what we need it to be. Mm -hmm. So my hope is that as my students get to know me and my style more, they know that, okay, we don't have homework, but I really should review this or I need to finish this because I didn't get it done in class. And so my hope is that they learn the value of those things because I've modeled it in what I have assigned them. Yeah. Not to say that every single thing is the most important thing I teach, but Probably one of the best things I ever learned, and this was as a result of COVID, was I need to stick to the bones of what I need to do. And sometimes the fun stuff doesn't actually satisfy. And that's okay. So I think I have kind of found a common ground where my students know, all right, if we know we have this to do, it's important. I think homework in college served, at least for me, a much different purpose than it did in high school. And that's because when you shift to high school... Homework is the preparation you do to be able to do classwork. Mm -hmm. At least in my case, it was like pages and pages of reading or like, you know, whatever it is, but you're coming, you're doing homework in order to prepare for the work Mm -hmm. you're doing in Mm -hmm. class, not so much in order to like drive home rote memorization of facts or equations or whatever it might be. So it's, it just serves a kind of different function Mm -hmm. from an environment where, yeah, I don't know. I just, I I think we're asking different things of those Mm -hmm. student populations and we should therefore kind of expect different homework loads. I know that I'm okay with, with that looking different Mm -hmm. for all levels of learners. Mm -hmm. The students I teach at the 10th grade level are in an accelerated track, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to go to college. Mm -hmm. And that's something I'm mindful of. So I try to make sure that what I'm teaching them is honest. And I, like, if we're doing a review, I'll be like, I'm not going to grade this. My hope is that you do it with us and you answer the questions and you think, okay, what can I do to prepare myself for this? But I tell them flat out, I'm not taking this for a grain. So if you don't do it, you don't do it. I put that on them. Mm-hmm. So I think that honesty is important in the case of homework because then, like I said, my kids know, all right, she gave us this, so she really wants us to do it. It's kind of like the boy who cried wolf sometimes, it feels like. Because I work with kids and they're like, well, teacher gave us this and usually it's homework, but this time they didn't say it. I didn't ask. I hear all of those types of statements of like uncertainty of how things work in the classroom. Yeah. And I think that that's why I'm so formulaic is because I want them to know exactly what's important and exactly how to do it and what I will grade and how. And so, and that goes with homework too. Yeah. The research that's out there supports that very clearly setting expectations around homework is one of the things that contributes to success in, in homework. (laughs) So I think broadly speaking, we've got to, two camps about this and and while it sounds like we're kind of issuing a takedown of homework here obviously because of at least in part some of our own childhood hang-ups around homework but (laughs) the evolving conversation here is basically kind of coming down to two camps and there are a few educational researchers who have studied this stuff I guess I would just say it's not nearly as widely studied as it should be Mm -hmm. the the efficacy of homework and people are just now starting to take a really sustained research interest in this stuff but there's the first camp led by a guy named harris cooper he's a professor of psychology and neuroscience at duke university he conducted a review of the existing research on homework in the mid-2000s and found that up to a point the amount of homework students reported doing correlates with their performance on in-class tests so 
stronger for older students than for younger ones. Older I think students that's key. Tend to have more homework. Mm-hmm, yeah, there's mm-hmm. there's strong evidence to suggest that as students get older, yes. homework becomes more effective. That's there's, yes. There's also evidence to suggest that students at the lower end of academic achievement benefit more from sure homework. All of this makes good sense. So it's, it's not this general good thing, mm-hmm. but it is a good thing for. Certain learners at certain times yeah. in their learning, and you're kind of like goldilocksing it, right? yeah. Like yeah. it's just right. And that's Harris Cooper's position. Then we get on the other side. We get Alfie Cohn, who is the author of the homework myth: Why our kids get too much of a bad thing. He considers homework to be quote a reliable extinguisher of curiosity, end quote. And as several complaints with the evidence that Cooper and others cite in favor of it, Cohn notes that some of Cooper's analyses don't establish causation, which kind of makes sense because. How would you ever in such a complex issue? But anyway, he's suggesting that the correlation that Cooper notes could be based on children's potentially unreliable self-reporting, how much time they spent doing homework. And then I think the other thing he draws attention to the fact is that some countries that regularly outperform American students uh, on standardized testing, like Japan and Denmark and some of these other places, they send their kids home with less schoolwork. And then students from countries with higher homework loads like Thailand and Greece tend to fare worse Mm -hmm. on standardized tests than American students. So there's evidence to suggest it's not just a blanket good thing to prescribe a ton of homework. I think I'm on that side anyways, you know? Yeah. And like I said, I think what you mentioned about age appropriate is key. Level appropriate is key. Things like that. I think that in the case of my seniors, I push them plenty. And I think that I create as close to a college level learning opportunity for them as I can within the four walls of a high school. And I think that that's the best I can do to help prepare them. Right. Yeah. I I think my key takeaway from all of this is just that rather than relying on what was done to us when we were kids or these ideas of educational rigor that we, that we have rigor mortis, yeah, (laughs) educational rigor mortis, rather than relying on our kind of gut feeling about how we need to be tough and assign a lot of homework, we should just look at the data. Like we should just look at what data says actually Mm -hmm. helps academic performance. And it's pretty clear, at least the studies that we do have, pretty clear younger learners, homework is not so great. As they get older, Mm -hmm. homework becomes helpful. But too much homework still, even for older students, Homework still can have a detrimental effect mm-hmm. if there's too much of it or if it's the wrong kind of homework. Um, so, yeah, sure. I guess I just think my my takeaway from all this is that we've kind of relied on what feels to me like folk wisdom too much. We, we've relied on what we've always done or what we had to do when we were students. We, we rely on kind of anecdotal feelings to drive educational policy. And I just yeah. I keep having my mind blown over and over again when it's just like it, like I was talking about before, the, the stuff about phonics, the mm-hmm. the fact that we've based our nation's phonics instruction on completely made up stuff that doesn't really work because it came from certain trusted experts in the education field who we can now no longer trust. It's Mm -hmm. just, it's hard. So anyway, that's just my takeaway is that I just wish that we made more decisions based on, on what data actually tells us about what Mm -hmm. is good for our students. For sure. I mean, in my first couple of years and with uh, other teachers I know and mentors and things like that, they would always ask the question, like, what is your homework doing? And if you can't get through it all in class, what are you doing that you shouldn't be? So it caused me to do a lot of thinking about what I'm covering and how much time I spend covering something and things like that. And I think that that was important for me as a young teacher and is still important to me today.
We're going to wrap up with fill in the blank this week since we did our what we learned at the mm-hmm. top. If you happen to know the answer to this trivia question, go ahead and write into us. Hello at 16 to onecom Send us the answer. If you send us the correct answer, we will, and you send us your address, we will send you some 16 to 1 stickers. Sure We'd will. love to hear from you. Even if you don't send us the correct answer, we will still send you some stickers. Mm-hmm. So go ahead, reach out. We'd love to hear from you. What was the last episode's question? The first surviving version of this combined epic, known as the Old Babylonian version, dates back to the 18th century BC. Only a few tablets of it have survived. The epic is regarded as foundational work in religion and the tradition of heroic sagas, with the main character forming the prototype for later heroes like Heracles, also known as Hercules, and the epic itself serving as an influence for Homeric epics. And what was that? It was the Epic of Gilgamesh. Mm. All right. This episode. Yes. What is this episode's question? According to a 2021 Pew Research study, what percentage of parents with children whose schools were closed during the pandemic said that their child encountered at least one technology-related obstacle to completing their schoolwork during that time? So not necessarily a homework question, but an at-home work question. Oh, that was cute. Yeah. Yeah, I tried really hard. Thank you. You've been thinking about that one the whole episode. I sure have. I sure have. Final thoughts, parting shots, anything our listeners need to know? Can I plug a book I just finished? Of course you can. I just finished reading 112263 by Stephen King. What's that about? It's been out for a while, so I don't feel like I'm ruining it, but it's basically a story about time travel in which someone is trying to go back and change the course of history by saving JFK on that day. Oh, okay. And I told Chelsea that when I read it, I wanted to change every book I had ever put as a five-star read on Goodreads a four-star. It was incredible. It is one of the best books I have read listen to whatever anyways it was just wonderful so stephen king for the win go figure dang it lots of good book recommendations yeah i also read another book called the internet con it's about big tech and how certain big tech monopolies have kind of encouraged a culture of grossness Mm -hmm. so yeah we've got a lot of interesting things on our reading list these weeks so yeah anything else i think that's it we will see you in two weeks we'll wrap it up see you in two weeks Bye 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 Listeners, thanks for supporting 16 to 1. We're your co-hosts. I'm Chelsea Adams. And I'm Katie Day. Find our show notes, archives, and resources, sign up for our newsletter, or get in touch with us via the contact form at 16to1.com, all spelled out. We are so grateful for our listener support. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to the show and telling your friends or colleagues about it. The show is edited and produced by you, Chelsea Adams, and you're also responsible for our show's music. And you, Katie Day, serve as lead researcher and social media manager. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next show. I wonder if the mic picked up her burp. It felt very guttural. It was deep. Yeah, it felt kind of like volcanic. Say hi. Make noise. Nice. That was a good one.